Well, good morning. Boy, it's great to have you all here today. Uh, we're in this series looking at some of the basics of, of Parkview, and uh, today we're looking at what does it mean to, to love and to care uh, for others. And you can see that in our slogan statement right up here, loving God, uh, loving others, and serving the world. It's, it sort of is the how-to of our mission. Our mission is to extend the gospel uh, together for the good of our neighbors and for the good of the world. And we do this by, by our vision, helping people experience the hope and healing power of the gospel. And as Doug, during communion, looked at First uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, it really goes all the way back to the gospel and it deals with the whole definition of love. Another passage out of First John chapter 4 says, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so immediately we might think, well, but who really, who really is our brother? Does that mean my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, my relatives? Oh, I don't have any problem uh, loving uh, my, my friends like this and uh, my family. Well, what about, well, maybe if it's not that, maybe does it extend itself to the body of Christ? Uh, or is it beyond that? Well, Jesus makes it real clear in Matthew 5. He even says, love your enemies. Uh, bless, bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and even persecute you. So the gospel, when we receive the love of God, people who were at enmity with God, now he pours out his love upon us so that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit that we looked at last week, now we can love others. Uh, in a way uh, that even to people who don't deserve it, those who hate us, those who persecute us, those who despitefully uh, use us. That's an important concept dealing with our entire mission statement. The passage we're going to look at today is called The Good Samaritan, and it does a wonderful job of describing and defining what love is and what it looks like. And, and it's interesting as we look at the Good Samaritan. By, by the way, the, this story is the best-known worldwide story uh, out of the Bible uh, that people know throughout the world. More than uh, any other story, it's the Good Samaritan. And it's because there are so many... In every country, there's Good Samaritan hospitals, there are Good Samaritan recovery houses, Good Samaritan... You know, So they're familiar uh, with that term. But it does a wonderful job of painting the picture of what love really looks like. It only takes 40 seconds to tell the story, and yet the word love is never even used in the story itself. It's only painted on the canvas of our minds by the greatest storyteller who ever existed, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it teaches us what loving others is all about. So as we begin to peel back the layers of the story, it all goes back down to the very beginning, and that's God's great love for us expressed on the cross uh, for, for us. And then in turn, as we love God, we automatically begin to love others as well. So I'm going to start with a few questions, okay? Uh, most of you will get these right. First question, do you know what the greatest commandment is in the Bible? You don't have to say it word perfect, but do you know what it is? What is the greatest commandment in the entire Bible to do what? Yeah, lo love God, love God. What's the second greatest commandment in all the Bible? 
Yeah, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Some of you are already batting, you're batting a thousand. You're two for two. So I'm going to, let's try one more. Do you, and I know I'm speaking to those of you in a church, do you love God? Yes, okay, so a lot of you are three for three. Uh, one more. Do you love your neighbor? So you go, oh, well, well, Jeff, what do you mean, neighbor? Define neighbor for me. Is that the person who's next door? Is it my brothers, my sisters? Is it my mom and dad? Is it the people I like? Or do you also mean non-Christians? Do you also mean Republicans or Democrats? Do you mean people of the same skin tone? Or could it also include people who look very different from me? Does it also include those who might be from other cultures or other continents? Would that also include people who might define sexual preference a little differently than I define it? Does it mean loving them? Or does it mean loving people with a communicable disease? Does it mean somebody who's gone through a divorce or somebody who's had an abortion? Does it mean I also need to love them? So please define for me how do you mean neighbor? Is it people just on the A team or would it also have to include people on the B team as well? If I love Jesus, am I really obligated to love others? And so that's the question that Jesus deals with in Luke chapter 10. So it starts with an interrogation. This young gunslinging lawyer, and the lawyers were called Old Testament scholars. They're the ones who were intrigued with Jesus' ability to shoot down his colleagues in a nice way. I mean, he left his colleagues without answers. And so this gunslinging lawyer goes, you know what? This is an uneducated guy from Galilee. He's got calloused hands. He was a carpenter. He's got a bronzed brow from being out in the sun. I'm, I'm going to test this guy, and I'm going to redeem my colleagues. And so it says in verse 25 of Luke 10, Behold, this lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And here's this test question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this lawyer wants to sharpen the blade of his intelligence on the razor strap of argument. So he poses a question that thousands upon thousands of philosophers and people ask all the time. I dare say everyone in here has asked that question. If you believe in any form of eternal life or anything that happens after this life, then you'll want to know, okay, well, well, how? How do I inherit eternal life? In verse 25. And so this young lawyer wanting to test him thinks, well, I'll ask this question. He's going to come back with this answer. I'll come back with another question and I'll, I'll put this guy in his place. Now, I am going to redeem and verify my colleagues, and I'm going to be able to put some notches on my theological handle. But Jesus, in a very disarming way, just merely asks a question. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 26. And so this, this undeterred lawyer answers 
with the most famous expression of Israel, the Shema of Israel. Hear the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and then he goes into the, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and, and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now, understand, Jesus was not trying at this point to preach justification by works. He's just merely applying those things that he's already taught. He's made it real clear it's by faith, faith alone, but genuine faith is never alone. There's always fruit that comes from genuine faith. In other words, salvation is far, far more than just being saved from salvation is also being saved to something. And a lot of times, you know, people will say, are you saved? Oh yeah, I, I was saved. I was saved from, the, uh, from my sin. Well, what do you say to? Is there a to there? Uh, as an elder board, we're reading a book. Uh, the book is called Gospel Fluency. Jeff Vanderstelt has written it. And here's my favorite paragraph in the entire book. Uh, matter of fact, John McHale, when he comes up at, at, toward the end, he's going he's to uh, talk about this guy. He's a great guy. Here's a quote. God doesn't just want to ha- us to have a zero balance in our sin account. Now, normally we think of that, and, and it is that for sure. When we're saved, Jesus wipes away our sin. He pays for our sin. We have a zero balance in our sin account. But then he goes on, he also expects us to have a full and complete balance in our righteousness account. In other words, that's being saved to something. That's the whole reason we're born. We're reasoned to, we're, we're, we're born, we're here to honor, to glorify God. If you've been a Presbyterian, you've said it a zillion times and to enjoy him forever. That's why we're born. It's, that's the, the righteousness account. That's the standard. His expectation for the human life is his glory. Living in such a way as to display and declare what he is really like and everything that we feel and think and do. Well, you can just sense the uneasiness in this young lawyer. I mean, he, he is, he's getting ready to get pinned, okay? He, he's, he's getting ready to get checkmated. And so he wants to escape by entering into theological dialogue. And so that's exactly what he does through the means of justification of verse 29. But he desiring to, he's getting ready to get pinned. He wants to justify himself now, said to Jesus. So, oh, Jesus, uh, let's talk about the word. Uh, Who is my neighbor? We better understand this because that's in our mission statement. That's the word neighbors in our mission statement. We better get a grip on it. See, um, this lawyer, just like you and me, we have no problem loving God. Do you love God? Oh, yeah, uh, of course. Oh, of course I love God. But he's got a big problem with the word neighbor. And so he does what most of us feel comfortable doing as well. We want um, to define terms. We want to justify ourselves And so whenever this lawyer, like you and me, whenever we're confronted by a very clear edict from God, we want a definition of terms. Um, Boy, uh, Jesus, 
if, if, I, if I can just get this into a discussion group, if I can just get it to talk about it, to debate it long enough. If I can debate it long enough, then I can diffuse it. And if I can diffuse it, so he said, well, who's my neighbor? Uh, is my neighbor a Jew? Is my neighbor maybe a Gentile? How about a Samaritan? Well, what about an Edomite? Maybe my neighbor's an Edomite. Maybe it's a Hivite or a Hittite or a Stalactite or a Stalagmite. Uh, if I can just debate it long enough, you know, therefore hitherto vis-a-vis in so much as. See, all he's wanting to do is to take the cutlass of dialogue, the rapier of rhetoric, and he's wanting to slice and dice and chop and cut the Bible and Jesus into so many little pieces, he can just paste these little pieces around himself. But the problem is, the warning is, if what we're trying to do is feed is to fit Jesus around our lives, then Jesus is not the Lord of our lives. Can I tell you what the temptation is? Here's my temptation. My temptation is when I am confronted by a very clear edict from God. Now, I don't care what it is. It it might deal with with how I handle my money. It might deal with... um, how I treat other people. It might deal you know, with anything that's clear. It might deal with sexuality. Whenever I deal with a clear edict of God, I've got two choices. Actually, there's three, but two major choices. I can either repent or I can attempt to justify. Those are my options. The, the other option that's become very popular now is just get vulnerable, but, but never change. Oh, yeah, I really struggle with this. Confess, confess, but never change. Those are your options. When you're confronted with a clear edict from God, you either repent or you do what this lawyer did. Just justify. So Jesus launches into this illustration. It's a wonderful, wonderful story about who a neighbor is. So he takes this lawyer out of the realm of quills and scrolls and parchments and he brings him right into the realm of ambulance drivers and cops. He takes him away from the libraries and the dusty commentaries and he drives him right to the point where people get beat up and left for dead. And he explains to us what love really is. See, the whole thrust of this book and the whole Bible is God loves us so much he gives his life for us. And if we love God, 1 John makes it clear, we really love Jesus. If we really love Jesus, we love others who aren't really necessarily that lovable. So here's here's the story. 40 seconds, 40 seconds, and he doesn't even use the word love. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. And when he went to him and he bound him up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when, you, when I come back. Forty seconds. Forty seconds. But the biggest question anyone will ever have to answer comes out of this question. And that is, do we, do we really love God? And the point is, from the story, if we really love God, which in the case of the lawyer, it was really easy for him to say, if we really love God, then the love that we love for God will pour itself out as we manifest that love in the lives of others. Helmut Tillichie, who uh, preached this passage, used this illustration as he preached it. He said, uh, it reminds me of my little son. My little son, I would hold the, my little son up to the mirror and he would wave an arm. The image in the mirror would wave an arm. He'd wave the other arm. The mirror, in the, the, the image in the mirror would wave would uh, move the arm. Then all of a sudden, the little son says, that's me. And that's exactly the point of the story. You know, Jesus, whenever he would tell stories like this, they, they would just take seconds to tell. And all he was doing was raising us up in front of the mirror and going, there's the image. Is that you? And that image cries out to our heart and to our soul and to our mind and says, are you reflecting the image of God? Are you like Jesus? The story is real simple. I really don't need to tell it again. But by implication, it was a Jew left on the side of the road. He was beaten and stripped and robbed, left for dead by some robbers. And here comes a priest, here comes a Levite. They pass by. And you think about it, if anybody should have helped him, there's a Jew on the side of the road and a priest and a Levite come by. If anybody, these were religious men. If anybody should have helped him, it should have been them. I mean, they were the ones, any Orthodox Jew, every morning the very first thing they would say when they would get up is the Shema of Israel. Hear the Lord God, the Lord, Lord our God is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. They say that every morning. And they stepped over the sky to get to the other side. I, I'm sure, like you and me, they must have been on urgent business. They, they were trying to get to Jericho, and in order to get from Jerusalem to Jericho, the fastest way, the most direct way, was on this particular road. It was a dangerous road. It was the fastest way. Jericho was the, was the richest, wealthiest city in the world at the time. It was the largest city in the world at the time. It was lush and beautiful. And it was an oasis in the middle of a desert. And so people would go there, and people on business would go there, and probably the priests and Levite were on, on business, probably religious business, and they had a schedule to keep. It, they went that way because it was the fastest. They could have gone the Judean arch, which would have taken a lot more time, but far, far safer. And I'm probably sure they probably came up with a dozen good reasons not to stop. They probably even came up with 
a dozen or so verses they could have quoted. You know, there's blood, they didn't want to get defiled, maybe he's dead, don't want to touch him. They could have come up with a dozen verses to keep from touching this guy or dealing with this guy. Do you sense yourself in the mirror at this point? You see the image in the mirror and you're going, is that me? Is that me? Am I measuring up or not? You see, if we really love God, we're really going to love Jesus. And if we really love Jesus, that means we're really going to love others. Neighbors, yeah, it, it means your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means your family. But it's more than that. It, it also means those who persecute you. It means those who hate you, those who despitefully use you. It means those who are just like us as we looked at Christ. I mean, we were the ones who were at enmity with God, and yet look how he loved us. That is the gospel. Or are we just like the lawyer who is so consumed in his own business? Do we get so consumed in our own business, so consumed in ourselves, so consumed in our theology and in our syntax and in the parsing of our verbs and the lexicography of the original language that we really lose sight of the individual who's just gone through a crushing divorce? And we think, oh, they sort of get what they deserved and quote a few verses. Or the person who's suffering uh, with inoperable cancer. Do we look over those people? Do we look over the people who perhaps maybe the young girl who has found out that she's HIV positive? Is it easy to look the other way? What about the young guy who's suffering? What about the person who has a different sexual orientation than we do. I could quote a number of verses and excuse myself from getting involved in his life. What about the young girl who had an abortion? It's easy for us to condemn them, but do we come alongside? Or what about the young girl who didn't, because of what we said, have an abortion, and yet when she alone without a husband is trying to raise that kid and send that kid to school and send that kid through college, do we wipe our hands and say, I did my job, I kept them from having an abortion? Or do we really love them? All of you have seen the pictures of the Gulf Coast. 185,000 homes impacted, 100,000 destroyed. You've seen it. And over and over and over as you've looked, you've been given opportunities just in a few clicks. They're your neighbors. They are so close to you. They're in your homes every night. And with a few clicks, you could have helped, did you? Or I bet You've probably come up with lots of reasons other people should have, but you really couldn't. Now, the priest, the Levite, had very good, sound, practical, financial, and if they had to, they could have come up with scriptural reasons why not to get involved. Folks, we do it all the time. I do it. I do it all the time. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came up where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
I don't want you to miss the point of this story. It's not just that we are to love and care for others, but it's also who, the who. And I think we easily excuse ourselves from the who by wanting to, again, taking the cutlass of dialogue and the rapier of rhetoric and just slicing and dicing the text so that Jesus fits around our prejudices. And the danger is he's disintegrated into who he is supposed to be and we're just making ourselves feel better. But at that point, he ceased being our Lord. So the challenges. He challenged the lawyer. At least he said, who do you think? Who do you think proved to be the neighbor? And at least the lawyer had the courage to say, it was the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said to him, and he says to us today, you go and do likewise. So who are we to love and care for? Your neighbor. That's anyone that you see. Anyone whose need you can meet. Let me ask John McHale. John McHale is our pastor of community groups. He's part of the caring team. If you'll come up and just share how we can help apply this to our lives, John. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Probably should have sat up here instead of all the way in the back. Get some exercise. Uh, so let's uh, let's just keep going. Uh, my job is to come up here and help us talk about application. How do we obey this parable as a church family? And I think it would be so easy for us uh, to walk out this afternoon with the wrong application. We've heard this story a million times um, and we're a part of church culture. It would be so easy for us to walk out of here with the wrong idea. It might go something like this. I need to be nicer to people in need. That's not what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. And what I want to do is hold up that wrong application and poke some holes in it and give you two thoughts on why uh, there's a problem with that application. The first problem is the word nice is never used in the Bible. I know that's a shocker. The word Jesus does use is compassion. The Samaritan had compassion on the man who was lying in the ditch, beaten and bloody, half dead. And he was moved with compassion to act. Compassion is not the warm, fuzzy, nice feeling you get when you watch a Disney movie. And don't get me wrong, I love warm fuzzies. I love watching me some Moana. I got the whole soundtrack memorized. I'm not dissing warm fuzzies. But compassion is something different. Compassion hits us in the gut. Compassion is that heart-wrenching feeling that moves us to act, to endure suffering, to endure sacrifice for the sake of loving another person. But 
Becoming that kind of person is not easy. Becoming a person of love and compassion is costly. And the story of the Good Samaritan shows us this vividly. The Good Samaritan, he, he stops in a dangerous place. The Good Samaritan gets out of his car in a neighborhood that is known for being violent, for being filled with crime. He risks his own life by leaving a place of safety and getting down in the mud, in the blood. He gets down and meets this man and starts ministering to him. Some commentators talk about how this man had to tear pieces of his own clothes off to make bandages to care for this man who is bloody, half dead in the ditch. And then he goes and he gives up his whole evening, right? He probably had plans. His friends were probably waiting for him. And he couldn't, uh, it wasn't the, the day and age where he could shoot his friends a text. Hey guys, not going to make it. He gave up his plans. He gave up his schedule to love this man. And then he gave his money away. Money he probably needed to pay bills. I mean, dude's got bills to pay. I guarantee it. Or maybe he was saving up for the, the latest Nike sandals on the market. Or maybe there was an Under Armour cloak that he had his eye on. He gave, he gave his money away. The good Samaritan died to safety, comfort, and convenience in order to love this man. Becoming a person of love and compassion is going to be costly. The second problem with this application, I need to be nicer to people in need, is its individualistic focus. When Jesus rescues us from sin and rebellion, he also gives us a community. The Christian life is designed for community. And so let me explain, because uh, I wasn't always the community guy. Uh, I wasn't always beating that drum. Let me, let me explain. There were some light bulbs that went on uh, for me in my Greek New Testament class studying the second personal pronoun. Who knew grammar was going to have a tremendous influence on my life? But go figure. English, in English, there's no distinction between the singular and the plural second personal pronoun. So I can look at an individual like Dave Lutzko back there and say, Dave, you look so good this morning. You're, you do such a great job with tech team. Or I can look at all of you and say, you look good today. You look good on this Labor Day weekend getting ready for fall, you look good. Now, Greek is different because Greek has two different words for the singular and the plural. And because I went to seminary in Texas, they had an English word for the plural second personal pronoun. You guess what it is? Y'all. And my professors actually had me translate the New Testament with y'all as part of our vocab. And it, I, I was so astonished because as I translated all of these passages, every single one, I kept coming back to this point that the book is written to a y'all. 
It's written to a community of people. And it's so easy for us because we have our our individual Bibles and the English language doesn't help us and we sit with our coffee and we read these texts and we think the Bible's talking about me. But the Bible is talking to a y'all. And so if the Bible is written to a community, then it must be applied in community. This means that the life of, the, the life of radical love and compassion needs a community around it to thrive. If we're going to live out the Good Samaritan parable, we need a team around us for encouragement, for resources, for um, accountability. This is the vision for community groups at Parkview Church to be smaller communities radically devoted to living out the New Testament. Now, some of you uh, may not know, but the past few years, we've been transitioning our community groups to function more like missional communities. And so think, think less Bible study group and more uh, local outre- outreach group. We want our groups to be centered on the word but we also want them to be living out the word in the city. These are groups that are focused on living missionally in the city. And since we're young in this transition, what I've learned is it's helpful to tell stories because it's a new concept for us. And so there's this really cool story that I'm going to tell you about another church Uh, and and its missional community. There was a group of people that said, hey, we want to grow in missional community, and we're going to live on mission. We're going to love and serve a population that attends and frequents a local strip of bars. So it's well known in their city, hey, that's the spot you go party at. And so this group said, hey, we're going to show up every weekend and love these people. And so they started every week Month by month by month, they showed up and they cared for people who got sick. They had water for folks. They engaged people in conversations. They made sure people had a safe ride home. And month after month after month, they began to build relationships and they saw occasional fruit. But eventually, the thing just exploded. Because what happened was, the bouncers at these bars began to ask questions, began to wonder, why did these people come and get barfed on? Why did these people come down and step into the mud and the blood and the tears and love these people? And it became this platform for the gospel. And they saw this huge movement within the the workers of the different bars people meeting Jesus, and it was beautiful. This is the apologetic of the early church in many ways as well. People were wondering, who is this strange group called Christian? Who are these people? What is their message? And the Christians would say, you want to know our message? Look at the way we care for your sick and diseased. Look for the way that we live among and feed the poor. That'll tell you something about our message. And that'll tell you something about our king. 
This is the kind of missional engagement with our city that we're trying to grow into at Parkview. And to help us with this transition, we are inviting everyone to the Saturate Conference. You may have heard of it. It's in your bulletin right here next to the outline. The Saturate Conference is going to be at the end of September, the 29th and 30th. And our brothers and sisters at Grace Community Church are going to host it. And uh, we're trying to get a lot of people from Parkview here because it's really going to be a game changer. It's going to help us understand what missional community is, the why behind it, and the how. And the Saturate team is going to be there. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt is uh, kind of the main guy. He's a pastor and church planner uh, who is leading the way in helping churches transition uh, to missional community. And so really, really excited about that. And really, just to share some of my experience, just talking with people and working with the groups we do have and some of the ministries we have, this, this context is so ripe for this kind of missional community. I think about all the international students that cover our city every year. And we have a great ministry, Friends with Internationals, that seeks to love that community and minister to that community. But what would it look like if we had four to five community groups that were devoted to that ministry? What would it look like if we had three, four, five community groups devoted to the university, seeking to look for the students that are lonely and depressed? We have a ministry 24-7, and they're running after the university. Well, what would it look like if we had four community groups helping that ministry? building a relationship with fraternity and sororities. How crazy would that be? That would be the weirdest thing in the world. But this is the movement of Jesus in our city. We show up in the places that no one wants to go. And so we're gathering a group to attend this conference and we're uh, working with our existing ministry to try and develop it to missional community. And if you can't be there uh, for the conference, please come see me. I got a zillion resources. I would love to, to meet with you and to help you grab hold of this idea. Um, just really praying for God uh, to help us move uh, to be a people of compassion and to grow in missional community. So let's pray. Father, uh, we pause and turn our minds and our hearts and our eyes to you and acknowledge together that you are good and you are faithful. You have loved us more than we have ever loved you. Thank you that your love is not dependent upon our obedience. Thank you that you are even now pouring out your grace on us by the person of your Holy Spirit. I pray you would help us to engage this city with missional compassion, that we would be people down in the trenches, down in the mud and the blood, loving and serving this city with the hope of the gospel. We love you and we trust you and pray in Jesus' name.